Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. And for the rest of us, uh, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 for today's message. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And we will start this morning by reading that section in Scripture. There Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to, to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So last week, we introduced the author and the reader of this letter, which we'll continue to study today. We looked at the life of Peter, who wrote the letter, and we saw how he was the recipient of much grace and peace during and after Jesus' earthly ministry. He received much grace and peace in order to match the amount of suffering and persecution that he personally experienced. And then we then looked at the recipients of this letter, the chosen exiles who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, they were no strangers to suffering and persecution either. And we saw examples of how they were hated by both Jews and Gentiles. When Peter wrote this letter to the scattered Christians, it's likely that the persecution and mistreatment for those believers was at its heaviest. The Roman emperor, Nero, used the Christians as a scapegoat for what has been dubbed the Great Fire, of Rome. The great city had caught on fire, and many of the Roman citizens lost their homes, the temples to their gods, and shrines. Uh, uh, let me remind you that this was a pagan uh, nation. So by spreading rumors that Christians had set the fires, Nero fanned the flames of prejudice against these Christians. So as one of the leaders of the church then, what was Peter to do? He sent this letter to encourage Christians, to give them hope, and to provide guidance 
on how they can live amid their persecution. And that's what we will see in today's section of Scripture. Immediately after his greeting, Peter gets straight down to business. So there's no dilly-dallying in this letter from Peter, no, no small talk. Peter goes straight into a stream of thought on the foundation that he will build the rest of his letter on. The true believer's salvation is what Peter wants the readers to dwell on. He starts with this salvation because of the grace that God provides the readers through it, not just to survive their present hardships, but to rejoice as they live with gratitude and eternal hope. In his ode to the glorious salvation of believers, Peter gives us three reasons to rejoice in our salvation. The first reason we'll look at is our imperishable future inheritance. The second reason is our impervious present faith. And the third reason to rejoice in our salvation is God's implementation of past prophets. So the first reason we'll look at today for the suffering Christian to rejoice in their salvation is their imperishable future inheritance. As we examine Peter's description of this future inheritance, we'll try to answer three questions about it. So first, we'll look at who gives this inheritance, what is the inheritance, and what is the inheritance like? So the first question, who gives this inheritance? Peter starts the body of his letter with a proclamation of honor and praise to God, the giver of our imperishable future inheritance. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter says that God is blessed, he's not as a mere man giving the Lord a blessing. When God blesses man, God gives or adds to that person's state of being. So it's possible for a person to experience greater degrees of blessedness or blessing. But when man blesses God, however, he can only acknowledge or declare or highlight God's blessed being. Because if you think about it, how, how could a mere man add more blessings to the infinitely perfect and eternal God? So this opening statement, therefore, is more of a, a celebration of God's excellence and his perfection. And, and notice further that Peter gives this grand proclamation and celebration of God with a two-part title. He calls him God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's address of God was a description that was uniquely Christian in that day. Those two words, or four words, God and Father of, could only have come from a Christian because it highlights God's relationship to the God-man, Jesus the Christ. Nobody but a Christian would ever have acknowledged any man as being from God. And furthermore, describing God as the Father of Jesus our Lord, Peter highlights God's authorship of the Christian's salvation. In John 3.16, during the, the well-known passage of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, where he describes how to be saved, Scripture says that God the Father loved the world that he sent his Son, Jesus, who was begotten by God, so that he might save some from eternal death. Therefore, God, we see, is the author of salvation, but also the one through whom it is accomplished. 
How blessed and how excellent is our God indeed, as Peter says. Peter also reminds the suffering Christian readers that their salvation, the reason for their persecution as Christians, is a gift from a merciful God. He writes next, who God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Peter is about to describe the nature of the believer's salvation, but first he completes his introduction of praise to God, the giver of grace. Peter finishes his proclamation of our blessed God by highlighting his mercy. He says that the readers have received salvation according to God's great mercy. So what Peter is saying here is that it is because God is merciful that he would cause these Christians to be born again. It was a natural outflow of God's compassionate character to save sinners who could do nothing but add to their debt of sins. So the giver of the believer's imperishable future inheritance, we see, is a merciful God. The next question to answer regarding this future imperishable inheritance is, what is it? Simply, it's the believer's salvation that's fully revealed in the last time. But this inheritance starts with being born again. Peter's choice of words here, of being born again, harkens back once more to John chapter 3. In Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, he explains to him that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus did not fully comprehend what it meant to be reborn. But we know that God, in his great mercy, causes believers to die to their old nature of selfishness, idolatry, hate, greed, pride. And believers are then reborn with a new nature, which finds its source in God's Holy Spirit, who works in all God's people to better reflect God's holy nature. So this future inheritance that Peter is describing is already received in part, and there are immediate benefits and blessings for the Christian at the point of salvation, like being justified before God, no longer being guilty for our sins, and greater holiness in this life. However, the greatest benefit and the fullest blessings for Christians are in the future. And that's this living hope that Peter says that Christians are born again into. He writes that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. Peter started this section with the present reality of the reader's salvation and being born again. And here now, he directs their attention to the future in this living hope. When you hope for something, you don't hope for something that you already have. It's a reality when you already have it. Uh, so though these Christians have received God's merciful gift of salvation when they were reborn, they had a new heart, um, that was not the ultimate hope that Peter intended to comfort them with. There was something more for these readers to hope for. And Peter directs his readers to a hope that they can't experience or have just yet. This unattained hope that true born-again Christians have was the hope of sharing in that resurrection from the dead that Jesus already accomplished. 
The Apostle Paul wrote something similar in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul wrote, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. As a first fruit, Christ was pioneering the way into resurrection and eternal life. The hope that Christians have is that like Christ, we will have a resurrected eternal life with him and with God. So everything that we have while we are alive on earth and everything that we experience while we're here, they will all pass away. And for Peter's readers, their present realities were not glorious nor desirable. For all of us here today, we know that the consequences of sin are real and we experience them every day. There's strife, there's arguing, emotional pain, physical pain, chronic pain, disappointment, and eventually death. But Peter, he shepherds his readers through their present struggles by pointing them to their future living hope. The living hope that we are born into is not an empty one. Rather, this hope is a sure thing. To contrast that, it's not the kind of hope where we wish for something to be true. For example, we might hope to win the lottery. The odds of that happening are very, very low, right? It's a hope, rather, in the sense that we long for the day when it becomes reality. An example is when I was a young teenager, I hoped for the day that I would get my driver's license and be able to drive myself to school. That was almost, not 100%, almost certain to come true, and I was eager for that day to come. Our living hope is even more certain than it was that I would someday get my driver's license. It's sure because it will follow the pattern that Christ has already set for us. At Jesus' second coming, all who have been born again will join him and finally receive the full hope of the inheritance that was promised to them. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus explains what it will be like in that day. In verse 34 of chapter 25, he describes the kind of invitation that we as Christians will receive. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The future inheritance that's promised to born-again Christians is eternal life in a kingdom that is ruled by the perfect ruler, Jesus himself. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we as believers are already heirs to this kingdom. In earthly terms, an inheritance is received after the bequeather has died, the one who's leaving the inheritance. But for the Christians, their inheritance is different because our bequeather, God, is eternal and he can never die. So we Christians, therefore, we will receive our inheritance after our present life on earth has expired. The last question I want to consider regarding this future imperishable inheritance is what is it like? Peter writes that our living hope is an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. If we were to put it simply, our future inheritance is nothing like what we're used to. 
Peter describes the Christian's future inheritance with three examples of what it's not like, which contrasted to the things that all the original readers and we today can relate to. First, he describes it as imperishable. It will never rot or decay. Jesus also describes this aspect of our future inheritance in a similar way in Matthew 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. All of our experiences on earth testify to the fact that nothing is forever. It either gets spent, breaks apart, wears away, or gets taken from us. But our future inheritance, our eternal life in God's kingdom, can never rot away, nor be taken from us. Peter says next that this inheritance is undefiled. It's free from stain or contamination, and in fact, it's incapable of being stained or contaminated. In our future dwelling, there's not going to be any trace of sin or corruption anywhere. And what a great hope for the early Christians who experienced so much of sin's effects. And what a hope for us today who are all too familiar with the consequences of sin's stains. And finally, Peter says that our future inheritance is unfading. It will never diminish or decrease in beauty. As Christians eagerly hope for this inheritance, the attractiveness and the desirability of it will never decrease, even after we have, we have it to its fullest measure. Contrast that with the never-ending pursuits that we often find ourselves in. We're always looking for greater achievements or better things. And not only do those things not last, but our enjoyment of those things fade away as well. So that after a while, we'll f we will feel the need for something bigger or something newer or fresher. But the attractiveness and the allure of our in in eternal inheritance will never die and will never fade. I like the way that one writer paraphrased these three adjectives. He put it this way. Our future inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. A final observation about what the Christian's future inheritance is like is that both the inheritance and the heirs who will receive it are guaranteed and preserved by the power of God himself until the time for the inheritance to be received. Peter writes that it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter writes to his readers that their inheritance is reserved in heaven for them. The promise of the inheritance to them is certain and set aside specifically for them. This personal guarantee of their inheritance gave the suffering Christians a stable confidence that they could rejoice in. God not only protects and preserves the inheritance, Peter encourages his readers with the truth that God is protecting their place as heirs of this inheritance. Their only call then is to commit their lives to him by faith, and God promises to hold them for as long as necessary until it is time for his salvation to be fully revealed 
and received by his children. Peter doesn't promise or even hint at when that time of receiving their inheritance might be. He calls it the last time to encourage the suffering Christians to stand firm and to endure with great expectation for the day when their hope will be made sure. So why is this future inheritance cause for rejoicing? Why, why should it cause us so much joy? For the suffering Christians that Peter wrote to, there was little to no experience of good things on earth. Instead, the temporary nature of things on earth was cause for more despair, not hope or joy. But this future inheritance that Peter describes was something that was already given by God to those who were born again. And by being, by being born again, they were already experiencing, to a lesser degree, some of the eternal hope that was promised by this inheritance. The truth that those suffering Christians and we today could rejoice in was that the fully revealed salvation would be death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. And finally, we can rejoice in the certainty that we will receive this inheritance and that God provides us the grace to continue to live by faith until the last time when we will receive this promised inheritance in full. So in our first point, Peter pointed his readers to this great and living hope in their imperishable future inheritance. Like a leader with good sense, he started by envisioning the saints with the future prized to come, and Peter directed their attention to where they were going. And that was important because he then moves into this next section of this passage where Peter brings them backwards through time to their present condition. In this section, Peter elaborates on their impervious present faith. That's the second point of our outline today. The impervious present faith of Peter's readers gave them reason to rejoice. So as I said, as if Peter was traveling backwards in time at light speed with the readers, he transitions to this next point with a, a soft landing in the present with a statement about the joy that his readers have because of the future inheritance that he just explained to them. As we know, the present condition of the readers of this letter was not one that would evoke celebration by worldly standards. They were suffering. Yet Peter starts out with this statement, in this you greatly rejoice. The future inheritance of the saints was a precious truth that they should find deep joy in despite their present trials. Peter transitions from the living hope to come to the reality of things here and now. And he writes, um, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a compassionate leader, Peter shows that he can relate to the reader's pain. He describes back to them what they are experiencing, but then he quickly follows that with a shepherding tone that instructs the readers and us in how to think rightly about those trials. Peter first describes their trials as being now for a little while. The trials that these suffering saints faced could have been for a season 
or it could have been even for their entire lives. But in either case, Peter describes it in a Christian perspective, a perspective that paints their present trials as a small dot on a never-ending line of eternity compared to the future imperishable inheritance that he just pointed them to. He could say with certainty that all trials are for a little while. Peter then acknowledges the variety and the magnitude of these trials. He writes, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter acknowledges that the suffering Christians experienced trials of all kinds. It could have been illness. It could have been ruthless ridicule by family or friends, imprisonment by the government, financial difficulties. Whatever it was that caused the suffering, the suffering, Peter says, was real. And Peter acknowledges that the readers were distressed by it. Between these two clauses of describing their trials, that they were for a little while, and that they were varied, Peter qualifies it all with, the, with two words. He says, if necessary. Here, he, he's pointing to God's sovereignty and power to control all things, even the afflictions that the saints were experiencing. In God's order, nothing happens by chance. And that's a comforting truth to fuel the perseverance of the suffering Christians. And it's a truth that would empower them to greatly rejoice, as Peter wrote in the beginning of this section, even as they were going through these trials. So he says that they're necessary. If, if these trials were necessary, what were they necessary for? In other words, what was the purpose of their trials? The word that Peter chose to refer to their suffering was not by accident. He calls them trials. This word has the idea of a test, <clears throat> like a test to verify the quality or the nature of something. So what is it that God is testing the quality of here? Peter writes that God uses their trials to demonstrate the genuineness of their faith, that is, the proof of their faith. Their suffering was necessary for their faith to show itself as being real. And how the Lord does that is analogous, as Peter says, to the testing process of gold. In ancient times, the, the way that they tested the genuineness of gold was through a process called assaying. What it involved was taking a chunk of a gold sample and melting it over a strong fire in a crucible. So the crucible was made of a material that would absorb any of the other metals from that sample, or the other materials would burn away in this intense heat. <clears throat> so at the end of this process, what you end up with is only the, the pure gold that remained in that crucible. So if there was any gold in that original sample of metal, you would end up with just that. And that's because gold is impervious to fire. It, it may melt, but it will not burn away. And so Peter compares this process of testing gold to the testing of the Christian's faith. Just like how intense heat is necessary for the pure and precious gold to emerge, Peter says that it may be necessary for God to use distressing trials to bring out the pure, precious, and impervious faith in his children. And just as gold shimmers brightly 
and brings wide eyes of admirers who look upon it, the Christian's faith, Peter says, will be awarded praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Referring back to the imperishable inheritance that is awaiting all of God's people. So we now know that trials and suffering are tests to prove the genuineness of faith. But for whose benefit is the Christian's faith tested? We know that God in his great mercy gives genuine faith that is essential for a new heart and new birth. So when God tests the Christian's faith, is that needed for him to know that the faith is real? Of course not. It was his sovereign choice to give faith to the, to the believer to begin with. Our trials are not meant for God to empirically test and know whether we have truly repented and truly have the Holy Spirit in us. Instead, it's for the benefit of the Christian who's being tested. Peter ends this section by pointing the readers again to the future, the revelation of Jesus Christ. At that time, the believer will be awarded his or her inheritance, complete with praise, honor, and glory from God. So when you go through a trial and you come out of it with your faith in the Lord intact, you can have greater assurance that your faith is genuine. And you can have greater assurance and stronger hope of that imperishable future inheritance that is yours. And so what a wonderful reason to rejoice. Peter goes on now, and he describes the kind of faith that passes the tests of trials. What does a pure and impervious faith look like? He writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. While not having seen Christ before, the Christian with true faith loves him. And while not presently seeing Christ, the Christian believes in him. Most of the readers to whom Peter wrote did not see Jesus in person, nor witness his ministry on earth. And yet, Peter says, they loved him and believed in him. Going back to Jesus' own words, this is a blessing, and it's worthy of recognition. Peter knew this well, because he was there when Jesus, in his resurrected body, appeared to the disciples and to Thomas. After Thomas finally acknowledges Jesus' re resurrection, he confesses to him, My Lord and my God. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see, and yet believed. That's in John chapter 20. The suffering Christians could experience blessing amid their trials because they believed in Christ, the Lamb who was slain, and believed that he was raised, even though they did not see the resurrected Christ. They heard from other faithful witnesses and believed through that. Just as you, you and I here today have not seen the resurrected Christ, but we've heard and we believed and we're blessed. So why is this all cause for rejoicing? Why is our impervious faith cause for rejoicing? Peter says, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The faith of the suffering Christians led them to greatly rejoice, and their joy was so great that Peter describes it as inexpressible, uh, 
and full of glory. Going back to Peter's illustration of testing gold, imagine a nugget of gold and how it might shimmer and shine as it's being assayed over a strong fire and all the other impurities are burning away. The rejoicing and the joy that Peter describes here is like the Christian's heart shining brightly amid, burning, uh, amid the trials that burn away and the impurities and the inessential things in life that are melting away. The word obtaining that Peter uses here implies a present benefit and receipt of blessing. While Peter encouraged the suffering saints to set their eyes on the future imperishable inheritance, they were presently experiencing the blessings of their position in Christ as redeemed sinners, and they were being sanctified to be made in greater likeness of Jesus. With each new trial, Peter says, reminds them, they stepped closer and closer to receiving their full inheritance, and that was cause for much rejoicing for those Christians and for us. So Cascades Bible Church, are you suffering right now? Or have you suffered? I would call you to look at these early suffering Christians and heed the words of the Apostle Peter to rejoice greatly. Even in the middle of hardships, you can rejoice because if you are in Christ, you can be confident that your faith is being tested and it's proving to be genuine. Just as impurities burn away to yield shimmering pure gold, when you are tested, consider what impurities in your heart and in your life are being burned away at that moment. Consider what shimmers of pure faith are being revealed. That is something you can rejoice in, despite being in the middle of trials. And in fact, the Apostle Peter calls you to greatly rejoice in that. In order to encourage these persecuted Christians dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, Peter started by directing their attention to their imperishable future inheritance, the grand inheritance that they were to receive in the future, which was guaranteed because of an almighty God who promised to preserve them until they could receive it. Peter then traveled backwards to their present time and showed them how their impervious present faith would withstand the test of life and prove them to be genuine men and women of faith, and that their faith was fueled by their joy of their salvation, and it would last until the fulfillment of their salvation. And now in this next section, Peter jumps once more through time, and he goes back now to their past. In this next section, Peter gives the suffering Christians a reason to rejoice in their salvation by pointing to God's implementation of past prophets. Let's read what he wrote in verses 10 through 12. He wrote, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Old Testament prophets 
carefully searched for this great salvation that the suffering Christians were now recipients of. God used these prophets to prophesy about the salvation to come in Jesus Christ. But these prophets were not passively writing the things that God spoke through them. Peter tells us that the gospel story was precious and awe-inspiring even to the prophets of the Old Testament who foretold Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection. Peter describes them as carefully searching and inquiring about the grace to come. So what we see is they were painstakingly studying and considering when this Christ would come. Isaiah comes to mind as one of these prophets who would eagerly seek to know more about this coming Christ. Remember Isaiah 53, where the prophet Isaiah prophesies about the suffering servant and describes in supernatural detail how Christ would be oppressed, afflicted, pierced, and crushed. But Isaiah also knew that the result of it all was the justification of many. Justification for those in Peter's day and justification even now today for all of us here. Knowing about this magnificent grace, how could Isaiah not long to know and see this Savior? Peter says that these Old Testament prophets were serving those suffering Christians. That is, that all of their prophecies and predictions were for the benefit of Peter's readers and for us. In Peter's second letter to the scattered believers, he repeats this thought in a more explicit way. Uh, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 to 21. There, Peter says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the message that these prophets received and proclaimed and recorded was not for their own benefit, and it was not to further their own agendas. They were moved and used as instruments of God to record God's words intended as a guiding light for lost sinners. I love the word picture that Peter uses here, that the truth and the good news of Scripture is like a lamp that shines as bright as the rising sun on the hearts of sinners. The readers of Peter's letters, and even we, were living in darkness, but the Old Testament prophets wrote of a glorious salvation, the gospel that would bring us into the light of grace and peace in God. Peter ends this seg- uh, section, uh, going back to 1 Peter, by magnifying and elevating the believer's valuation of their salvation with this capstone of heavenly wonder. He says that even the angels in heaven take great interest in the reader's salvation. So angels, they are holy beings, right? And they have never had a need for reconciliation with God. They never had a need for a Savior. 
Yet these angels, they understood how precious and marvelous grace is. And so Peter says that angels observe, like spectators from a distance, God's eternal plan of salvation unfolding before their eyes. This is why Jesus says in Luke 15 that the angels rejoice in heaven every time a sinner repents. And why is this a reason to rejoice? It's reason to rejoice because God has been faithful to accomplish everything that he promised. Thousands of years ago, God spoke through prophets about how he would save a people that did not even know him. I want to take a moment to remind you in summary of what God spoke through his prophets. He said that he would save these future people from the penalty of eternal death for sin and save them even from their slavery to sin. It's amazing that God would give the salvation to the types of people spoken of in Romans 3, 10 and 11, which we just memorized this past week. God gave mercy, he says, to unrighteous people who would not even choose to pursue him if it weren't for his intervention. And the salvation, the prophets say, was made possible by God's son, Jesus, who lived as a man and lived a perfect life that fully met God's standard for righteousness. And that was just what was needed because a sinless man was what was required to be a substitute for a sinful mankind. A man with sin couldn't possibly pay the debt for another man's sin. He has his own debts to pay. But Jesus willingly, willingly died a gruesome death on a cross to pay the penalty for sin on behalf of all who would believe and trust in him. He died and was buried, and he didn't stay buried. After three days, he was raised, and in his resurrected body, he ascended to heaven to be with God the Father. Jesus' resurrection and his presence with God now is also promised to those who would believe in him, and that is the future inheritance that Peter spoke of. All these things were foretold by the Old Testament prophets, and it came to pass in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle, as the Apostle Peter said in 2 um, Peter, we now have the prophetic word made more sure. The prophetic word that is yet to be accomplished of our future salvation is also made more sure for us as we have seen these things come to pass. If you have trusted and believed in Jesus, you can rejoice in this truth because we have received the salvation that the Old Testament prophets wrote about. It's like a timeless jewel that does not diminish in brilliance and beauty because it was precious to the Old Testament prophets. It was precious to the early Christians, and it's no less precious to us here today. If you're here and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, please do not wait. This good news of salvation that even angels are amazed by is for you if you will believe and trust in Jesus' sacrifice. Don't wait. There are many in this room who would love to share more about this hope after our service. Just ask. In this opening section of Peter's letter to the chosen exiles, we've seen how this leader of the early church comforted the suffering Christians. Rather than permitting them to dwell on their circumstances 
or to wallow in grief. Peter called on them, and he calls on us to rejoice in three truths. We're to have great hope in an imperishable future inheritance that we are already receiving the benefits of. We are not to be so quick to try to get past our trials because our present trials reveal and further refine our impervious present faith. And finally, we're to rejoice in God's implementation of past prophets who wrote of the salvation that is now ours, which even the angels are amazed by. What precious truths those are indeed. If or when you are suffering, I pray that you would recall these truths from Peter and choose to rejoice despite any circumstance that you find yourself in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your salvation. We remember how hopeless and dark our lives were before you gave us your Holy Spirit and gave us a new heart so that we would be reborn. And we're reminded today by your word of how hopeful we can live today because of the promise of resurrection and eternal life with you. How precious and how beautiful that hope is. Lord, some here may be in the middle of a trial right now, or perhaps you have ordained an upcoming trial for us. We pray that these words from the Apostle Peter would be an anchor for our hearts and our minds, so that in those moments we would actively choose to rejoice in the eternal truths of your gospel. We pray all these in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.